日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, and today we have a special treat for you. We get a lot of requests for an episode on weapons, so Jared Wilson of the Martial Thoughts podcast is going to school you in the ways of samurai weapons. In particular, the weird weapons of the samurai. All right, take it away, Jared. Weird weapons of the samurai. Hi, everyone. My name is Jared Wilson, and I'm the host of Martial Thoughts podcast. Where I discuss all sorts of different topics related to martial arts, though more recently I've started to focus on the academic side or the lack of academic side of martial arts. Before I get started, I just wanted to mention that I only really speak Japanglish, and I know many people on that would listen to this show where Chris himself are fluent in Japanese, so if I mispronounce anything or if my pronunciation is off on some of these terms,、uh, please forgive my ignorance. As far as background for me, I've been a martial artist for over 20 years. I've practiced several different Japanese arts, including Aikido, Jiu Jitsu, and Kenjitsu. And I've always been interested in the actual technique and application of weapons. So I want to talk today about some of the more unusual weapons of the samurai. And I'm including up through the Edo period, so I want to make sure that these were actual weapons and not like the ninja stars that were. Created later and then re- retroactively placed in the hands of the, the people of the time. And I'm also not going to be talking about Okinawan weapons that were used in、uh, many karate schools or Kobudo curriculum today. So I'm going to focus mainly on, well, I'm going to focus exclusively on Japanese weapons used in the Warring States period and then through the Edo period. My interest in this actually really started with an unusual revelation that it. In hindsight, it seems kind of obvious, but it's one of those, unless it's actually said, it may not be so obvious. And that's the idea that swords are actually pretty crappy weapons against anyone that's in armor. And I think some of that is the fact that movies sold us on the idea of armored samurai and armored knights fighting with swords, but that would have been a pretty useless endeavor.、Uh, the only thing you could really hope for would be to knock someone over and then stab them with it. Which is not what the Japanese swords are really meant to do. They're meant for cutting, not stabbing. Even though, yes, they can technically stab, that's not their primary function. Besides that, swords are actually relatively difficult to construct and relatively expensive compared to something that would be innately more useful, like a spear. So, the usefulness of a sword is actually in that it can be carried around relatively easily in civilian situations. Which is why we see an increase in the importance of its use in the Edo period, when it stopped being about warfare per se and started being about maintaining order. Against a guy wearing a silk kimono, a two foot razor blade is a really devastating weapon. Against a guy in armor,、eh, not so much. The other thing that kind of got me thinking about these weird weapons was once the European knights kind of encased themselves in armor, in plate armor. They stopped using swords against each other and they switched to more bludgeoning weapons like war hammers or maces. Or they used intricate pole arms like halberds. And that was because, again, the cutting 
effect wasn't really that impressive anymore with swords, at least through the armor. So at least you can bludgeon someone inside of the armor through the armor. So what about the samurai? Did they have any equivalents to these things? Well, we're going to talk about some of that. So just as a general idea, the, the three things that I'm kind of considering the normal weapons of the samurai, the, the ones we typically associate with them are the daikyu, the yari, and then the blades of various lengths, the tanto, wakazashi, and either the katana or the tachi, depending on the time period and that we're talking about. So let's talk about some of the more unusual pieces that we have in our Japanese arsenal. The first is kind of a logical leap that makes sense, and we're going to talk about the odachi, uh, which is called a great sword or the no dachi. Sometimes it's a field sword, though the name itself is kind of up in the air as it, it may be equivalent terms. And one place I actually read said that the no dachi term was actually a mistaken term when someone had written down or had said odachi. This is a blade that has a minimum length of three shaku, so three feet whereas normal katana are about 24 to 29 inches in blade length. So the blade itself has to be a minimum of 3 feet, and then to kind of counterbalance that and to give you a larger area to hold on to, they had these enlarged handles, so the whole thing was generally about 6 feet long. And these were wrapped handles, just like the katana and the wakasashi of the time. More recently, there tended to be ceremonial blades or they were offerings to shrines because basically the longer the blade, the more difficult it is to make it and to have it uh, maintain strength. Even just the drawing of the blade would have been very difficult. If you were walking around town, you know, just transporting the blade to someplace, carrying it around your back is fine. But it's almost impossible to get a normal sword out of a back sheath, let alone one where the blade is three feet long and then the handle is another three feet on top of it. So usually what they were done is one of, one of three ways. One, they were actually worn through the obi, like a katana, and you would just draw it that way. By rotating your hips back, extending your arm all the way, it might be possible to actually draw it that way. The other way is just holding the thing in your hand, and then essentially when it's time to draw it, you, th you throw the saya off the blade, the, the sheath. The third way is my favorite, is you would have it in your saya or you have it in your hand, and you had a special retainer whose job was to hold on to your saya as you pulled the blade out. <laughs> so you had your own special saya retainer. When they were used, they were referred to as anti-cavalry weapons. So with these huge blades, uh, they were going after the horse, not the rider. So I'm imagining that they were kind of like taking the legs out from underneath the horse as they were going by. The use of them declined after the Siege of Osaka in 1615, mainly because Toyotomi prohibited swords above a certain length. He actually said, okay, this is how long swords can be. If it's above that, uh, you can't do that. And being that he was the shogun, his word kind of went for everything. In Europe, they had a couple of extra long swords that for ceremonial purposes as well, like the, no, uh, like the Odachi. But some groups, like the German and the Swiss Landsneck troops, use them to break through pike walls. So if the enemy troops have all their spears pointed at you, you can't get to them. So they would send in these guys with these huge swords called Zweihanders, two-handed swords basically, to kind of cut through the spears, to break all the spears, 
so your troops could actually attack and get to the actual other soldiers. I didn't find any use like that on the Odachi, but it theoretically could have been possible. The second weapon I'm going to talk about, again, another one that's kind of more common, is the Naginata, which is a large pole arm with a curved blade at the end of the pole and a striking butt cap on the other end. The blade itself was anywhere from 10 to inches to 2 feet long, and the oldest ones were from all the way back in the Heian period. It's a very useful weapon. It can be used to stab, to cut, or you can actually concuss. You can strike someone with the other end, the butt cap. And it's very useful to be used on horseback. Or for the infantry soldier to use to unhorse someone. During the Edo period, they became less useful and they became more associated with women. The thought process was that the Naginata, with its longer reach and heavier weight, would equalize the upper body strength of the men of the male samurai. That idea has kind of pulled through to today, where Naginata Do is kind of a female equivalent to Kendo, even though the genders are kind of more equalized now. It's still kind of associated that way. Kind of halfway in between those two weapons is an unusual one called a Nagimaki which probably started again in the Heian period, but was definitely in use by the Kamakura and the Muromachi period. And it's kind of a, like I said, a combination of a sword and a polearm. It's a really long sword handle, two to three feet long wrapped sword handle, again, wrapped like the you think of with the katana. And then the blade length itself was two to four feet long. So the difference from the Odachi would be the proportion of the, uh, the sword to the handle length. It's treated like a sword when it's being used. In Naginata, when you switch sides and you cut from uh, from your left to your from the upper left to the lower right, you switch and you put your left hand forward. In Kenjutsu, your right hand is still going to be forward. So the Nagimaki was actually used more like a sword than a polearm, and because its handle was wrapped, maybe that was the implication with that. It's stated as being used by the infantry to go up against cavalry again, and uh, Usugi Kenshin was supposed to have an elite guard that was well-trained in the use of the Nagimaki. A variation on the Yari, that, and they had lots of variations on this, but the, the more common one for that is called a Juji Yari, which is a spear blade that has two blades kind of protruding out the side at right angles. There's other versions of this. One is called a, a katakamayari, which has a single blade coming off the side and is curved slightly up. Or a chidori jumonji, which has the cross blades, but then there's points on the back of them. And this is a really useful in spear versus spear combat because the purpose of the other blades was kind of to trap spear blades when it twists. Apart from that, it was basically just a spear, Kind of looks kind of like a combination between a spear and a trident. But that was his main use, was actually against spear versus spear combat. Now we'll get to some of the more unusual weapons. Uh, the kabutawari, for one of them. The helmet breaker, or skull breaker. Because it's sometimes also known as the hachiwari. It was knife-shaped piece of metal that often had a curious little hook on the side of it that kind of made it look like a can opener, is the best way I can describe it. The handle was often ornamented to look like a tanto. The metal blade was curved, 
towards the direction it was cutting, except there was no actual blade on it. It wasn't sharpened. It just was a metal bar. The idea behind them is that they were supposed to have been used to pry open helmets or to cut off the silk cords to get to faces or something like that. But that's probably all apocryphal, just because you wouldn't have the time or the ability to kind of literally pry open a helmet or to cut the cords like that. Sometimes the blade portion of the weapon was actually pointed and sharpened to a point, so it was most likely used for actually piercing armpits or groins or the other unarmored or weakly armored sections of, of samurai. There's no extant school that specialized in this, but there's several jute schools that have, that also train in this. And I'll get to the jute in one second here. Another kind of unusual one, and this one kind of fits the idea of what I was talking about with the European knights, uh, is called a, either a kanabo or a tetsubo, an iron staff. And this was basically a big baseball bat of hardwood that was usually studded with metal or sometimes had metal spikes on it and was often hexagonal. This originated in the Nabokucho period and again was specifically designed to go against armor, the same way that maces or the warhammer was meant to kind of concuss through the armor. This is kind of what this one was as well. The length of it depended on the person using it. Some of them were meant to be one-handed. Some of them required that they were two-handed that the actual weapon was somewhere between three and five feet long. For some reason, they're always associated with the oni, the demon ogre trolls from Japanese mythology. The next weapon I'm going to talk about is the kusarigama, which is a kama, which is a sickle, with a chain of some various length, depending on the school, depending on the user, and at the end of the chain is a weight. So it looks like a really unusual weapon. It looks like there's a hand sickle, with a piece of chain coming off the back of it, or the bottom of it. And then at the end is a, like, looks like a sinker for fishing. And it's used by swinging the chain portion around, distracting the opponent, sometimes striking with it, or most likely to be used for entangling swords or arms with it. Once they were entangled, then the comma blade would come in to stab or slice and do the finishing blow. And because of the swinging weight, I, I never could see this as a battlefield weapon. And I when I was researching this, I assumed it was an Edo period dueling weapon or an invention of that time period. However, it was at least in use through the Muromachi period. In fact, it, one of the verifiable sources says that Musashi faced off against a Kusarigama master named Baiken. So it was at least around during then. So maybe it was specifically engineered or designed to be a dueling weapon. It just was occurring as the battles were going on as well. There's some koru that still exists that specialize in kusarigama jutsu. Or they have it within their art as a specialization or a, a set of skills within their overall art. Such as the, uh, the Ishinru kusarigama jutsu, which is part of the Shinto Musoru. One of the weirdest little weapons... Uh, is called an uchine, which is described as being a throwing dart or sometimes a short javelin, and it it kind of looks like lawn darts. If you're old enough to remember when we would have these safety hazards in the backyard, uh, that's kind of what they look like, except they would often have a rope at the end of it so you could retrieve it, so you could pull it back. They were relatively short, less than two shaku long, two feet long, 
And the head, instead of being more like an arrowhead, was actually more like a spearhead in the triangle shape like we talked about earlier. And I'm going to say just off the top, just because I like to give credit where it's due, uh, almost all this information that I got here was from uh, Uchine, Japanese Throwing Arrow by Fujita Seiko and Sakai Shigeki, and then it was translated by Eric Shahan, which, as far as I know, is the only book on Uchine in English. So I wanted to make sure I threw that one out there if you're interested in this. It's a weird little weapon, and what that book is is a, uh, a conglomeration of all the different scrolls that mention it. The earliest mention of the weapon itself was from the, is from the Keicho era, and it's mentioned in almost all the books on archery. It's kind of the idea is this is when your last bowstring is broken, you would attach an arrow to the bow and so you could continue to fight and kind of use it as a spear. So you kind of take your broken bowstring, wrap it around it, and use that as a spear to keep on fighting. When that broke, well, then you had this kind of little dagger thing made out of a broken bow, some wrapping, and an arrow, and you kept fighting with that. The actual manufactured version of it was said to have been popular during the time when samurai would travel in palanquins where they couldn't draw their large weapons if they were attacked, so they needed a short weapon. And it seems to be that it was really more of a distracting weapon. You would throw it at someone, it had a danger to it, so they would have to deal with it, and that gave you that split second where you could draw your longer weapon, like your katana, something like that. So it's a weird case in that it was a battlefield weapon originally that was actually changed to a self-defense weapon. Along those same lines, we've got Tessin which are iron fans. And again, to give credit where it's due, a lot of this information is coming from the book Secret Weapons of Jiu-Jitsu by Don Cunningham. The original fan uh, that were associated with war were the Gunbei Uchiwa, which were iron fans that were non-folding, and they were used for signaling. They had different designs painted on them, I guess, and or the different ways that they would be uh, displayed would, would tell when to attack, when to retreat, that type of thing. Uh, there's a great story, because, you know, all great stories have to go back to Takeda Shingen, where he was attacked, and he was unable to draw his sword, but he was able to pull out his war fan to defend off blows from Usugi Kenshin, whose name shows up again. More commonly, we think of Tessin as being uh, iron fans. So I think of, like, the normal, you know, Japanese fan, you fan yourself off with it, except the outer two ribs of the fan are made of iron, and you can use it for blocking or for actual striking. None of the versions had uh, any type of metal blades that would stick out and be used for slicing, though. That's, that's all uh, good Mortal Kombat stuff that was made up later. And the idea was that it was because it was a fan, you could keep it with you all the time, even if you couldn't keep yourself armed with a blade. In fact, Minamori Yoshitsune supposedly learned both his Kenjutsu and his Tessenjutsu from a Tengu. The Yagyu-ru, which were the famous sword instructors of the Tokugawa and the bad guys in the Lone Wolf and Cub series, were known for their Tessenjutsu. By the time of the Edo period, social rank had become so codified that high-ranking samurai weren't supposed to sully their blades against low-ranking samurai. It was considered unseemly. But, if you could defeat them with your Tessin, with your Iron Fan, that was something you could do, and it was considered high class to be able to do it. Eventually, the weapon itself modified or evolved to be the point where it doesn't even open. It's simply a metal rod 
where the handle is wrapped to look like it's a fan. One of the weapons I was really expecting to find, but there isn't much, there isn't many examples of it, is some sort of Japanese battle axe, some sort of equivalency to that. And there is a weapon that's called an ono, which is uh, just an axe, or sometimes it's called masakari or fuetsa. But these are extremely rare. My thinking was, in order to get through the armor, having a battle axe would actually be good for that. They do have some examples, at least in story, they're associated with Kintaro from Japanese folklore, or with, they're associated with the Yamabushi. In Samurai um, Maedate, the helmet crests have axe-shaped, axe-head shapes on them. And there's some woodblock prints that show Samurai with these huge, huge, giant axes. Um, there's a really good one if you want to look it up online by Katsukawa Shuntai, which is a portrait of a samurai, and they say it's possibly Awate Saimon, who's got this giant axe where the axe head itself is bigger than his head and his helmet on it. There's some versions that show like a small axe head on the, uh, as a pole arm, kind of like the pole axes of Europe. But apart from that, I, there really isn't any kind of Japanese axe weapon. Which, again, I was kind of surprised at. The last two that I have here are really unusual in that they're meant to not necessarily be weapons of the battlefield. There is some evolution to where they did come from that, but for the most part, they're associated with the police actions of the Edo period. So the first one is either going to be called a jute or a jite, which is basically just an iron truncheon with a single fork coming off the side. So, to use the best example, think of Raphael's size from the Ninja Turtles, but have only one prong coming off the side instead of two. They're associated with the police, with the Edo period law enforcement, and they're a natural parrying weapon. The idea is that, not necessarily that you catch it with the spine of the blade and you use it to parry like that, but most likely that you block, the blade slides down into the fork, and then by twisting your hand, it kind of traps the weapon in there. Or the arm as well. This can be used that way too. It's easily carried in the obi uh, on both sides, so depending on the school, you draw it from either side. And in fact, the original jite was supposed to have been made by Masamune which is an unusual thing, but there's you know kind of the mythology of it kind of goes back to that. Miyamoto Musashi's father, uh, Miyamoto Munisai, was supposed to have been an expert with the jute toriru, an art that involved kenjutsu, jute, and jujiari, which we talked about earlier. So having this other weapon on him at all times as a secondary or blocking weapon is one of the ideas that said this might be where Musashi developed his two-sword system that he's famous for. And then the last weapon that I'm going to talk about is called a soregrami, or a sleeve entangler. And there's a couple of different versions of this, but basically it's a long pole, about six to seven feet long, with either a crossbar at the end or kind of pronged forks sticking off the end, and then they've got the butt cap just like the naginata that you can use specifically to strike people with. The non-butt cap end 
is going to be covered with either tiny metal barbs or with hooks of some sort. And its whole job is to basically grab onto either arms or legs, get caught up in the sleeves, get caught up in the fabric, because remember they're wearing kimonos and hikamas. There's, there's a lot of fabric to grab there. And by twisting and pulling on that, to subdue someone without killing them. So again, this is another weapon that's associated with police weapons, or with the police. If it's uh, the pronged fork version, you know, where it's kind of, think like it's, uh, a, it looks like a pitchfork on the end, but it's missing the middle spine. Those were used to, from a distance, kind of push into and capture an arm, prevent them from drawing a sword by pushing on it like that. And then you twist it and you lock up a joint that way. So those are some of the more unusual weapons that the samurai were known for having. I hope you enjoyed that. And I'll let Chris close out the episode here. Okay, that's it for this episode. And thanks, as always, to the patrons on Patreon. Your assistance is invaluable in making this podcast what it is. And if you're interested in seeing how you can help out, please check out patreon.com slash samurai archives. And with that, see you next time.